The Commentary Booth is a show for media lovers by media lovers just like you. If you want to support the show, go to pariomagazine.com.au. Welcome to the Commentary Booth, where we watch and you guessed it, commentate on the week that was in movies and TV. I'm your host and play-by-play commentator, Jamie Apps, and each week I'm joined by a rotating cast of colour commentators to help you find your next viewing treat. This week I'm joined by a teacher and travel blogger who lists their favourite movie as Fight Club and favourite TV show as Band of Brothers. Welcome back to the show. This is going to give him a big head. The best surfer I know, Buddy McClelland. Formerly the best surf, you know. <laughs> when is the last time you were actually on a board? Oh, it's not too bad, actually. Probably about six to eight weeks. As the colder it gets, the less likely I am now. Yeah. Old man syndrome's like, nope, not getting in the water. It's too much of a hassle. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I get the water's too cold or the waves aren't good enough or I'm too scared of sharks. Like, it's just, there's more and more excuses the older I get. Yeah, that's fair enough. I actually got a little magnet, like a, um shark deterrent bracelet thing you can wear now it's got like a magnet in it that's supposed to like deter them shark bands it's called and it's supposed to like screw up the nostril receptor things they have and look i've still got touch wood i've still got both legs attached at the moment so so far so good <laughs> yeah I, I guess that's as good evidence as you, you need really uh, i figure it can't make it worse yeah i guess unless you're swimming around with a dead fish on your neck yeah, that's true. I'm, yeah, well, I'm not doing that. Smart. <laughs> wouldn't, rec- wouldn't recommend. It's probably why you shouldn't go surfing. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's about as highly recommended as catching COVID. Holy dooly, that sucked. Oh, yeah, you survived. Congratulations. Not recommending it at all. Yeah. It's not fun. Tough, like sick sick or just? Oh, yeah, like proper, I felt horrible, spent four or five days just in bed, unable to get up. So, like, the fevers were what killed me. Sit there, one minute you're 40 degrees, the next minute you're mid to low 30s, just freezing. Yuck. I feel like every person that I talk to that's had COVID has either been, like you, like, really sick or just average. Like, oh, I just, I had a sneeze once and it was COVID. I'm better again. Yeah, well, I was the bad extreme, so you don't want that. Continue to do what you're doing and avoid it. Yeah, I, look, I, th- I still think it's the special ed immunity. I don't know, maybe teaching for years and years is finally paying off because we're certainly not getting a pay increase so far, but so far so good with COVID. Yeah, like when I did my rapid test, it lit up like Christmas tree. Like It wasn't one of those, oh, like I guess that could maybe be a positive. Like as soon as the, the liquid hit the line where the test is, ding, full on black. I was like, oh, yep. Yeah, I wasn't going to say it to you when you sent the photo through like our group chat, but I noticed how dark the line was compared to some of the other ones I'd seen. I thought, ooh, that can't be good, but I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, like it just, as soon as it hit, it was like full on black. And I was like, maybe it just does that and it, like it'll settle down after the 15 minutes. And then it started flashing <laughs> and it turned red. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, but negative now, ready for my trip. Thank God. Yeah, that's good. Oh, at least you have like a little immunity backup now. Yeah, well, I wasn't eligible for the fourth dose, so I just went out and got the fourth, fourth dose the hard way. 
those wrestling crowds, mate. I think it was more than eight hours in the airport. Yeah, I'm blaming the wrestling crowd. Were you being a traveller, have you had bad like flight experiences? Because oh, yeah. that was absolutely the worst flight I've ever had. In terms of delays or in terms of the flight itself? Both. Yuck. <laughs> Flying down, got there two hours early, expecting security to be a nightmare. Walked through like it was nothing. Had maybe two people in front of me. Sat at Sydney Airport for two hours. Got on my plane after it was delayed an hour. And it was the roughest flight I've had the entire way, not just takeoff and landing, like just the entire way. And I had the whole back row to myself. So I was like, well, if I'm dying, I'm dying alone. Great. <laughs> oh, that got sad fast. <laughs> and then the flight home, same thing. Got to the airport two hours early, expecting it to be a nightmare. Straight through. Like, really? And Melbourne Airport, you know how you have to like, in Sydney, you have to pull all your laptop and everything out of your bag to put it through the security. Mm-hmm. Melbourne, they're like, nah, just put it through. In the bag, everything. Look, Zeep's better. Yeah, right. I don't know which one makes me feel better. I'm always the guy, though, that gets bomb swabbed. I don't know what it is about my face or if I've got, like, a dodgy mark on, like, my identity or something, but I am forever the guy that gets bomb swabbed. And I always feel like I, you know, like, get pulled over and, you know, you haven't been drinking, but you panic yep. about the RBT. On the same thing, I'm like, oh, no, what if there's bomb residue? I mean, I'm like, never, not be near a bomb ever. <laughs> Anything explosive ever. Why am I freaking out about them swiping my belt with something? <laughs> but it's always me. But, yeah, I've had a few good ones. I um, My first ever flight, I flew, I don't know if you remember, Anset. Mm-hmm. So I flew Anset to the Gold Coast with my family, and that was, oh, when Anset was alive. So oh, mid-90s, late-90s, and... I didn't realise at the time how big a deal it was, but the crosswind was so bad that the plane actually did a touch and go. It was getting so much sway as it was coming down. They gave up, kind of touched a little bit and then took back off and did another lap around. And I thought it was just like normal because it was my first ever flight and I was a little kid. Mine wasn't that bad. (laughs) Then I look over at my dad and he's just like pale. So that was my first experience of it. I've had a couple. I've had Air Vanuatu has had some pretty, people got in the crash position and the pilot got applauded. But I think I told you recently, my most embarrassing flight experience was the time, you know, you see it and you think you get the whole road to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really excited and was on a flight back from the UK and it was on Eddie had, I think, on one of the big A380s and we're in the middle row, so there's four seats sitting there with Anne and there was a, a spare seat and a girl next to me and as the flight got fuller and fuller and fuller, I thought, oh, here we go, here we go, spare seat. Like, this is going to be so good. I'll be able to lay out a little bit, like 17 hours. And right as they're about to shut the door, I kind of lean over and tap the stranger that's across the gap from me. I said, oh, how good's this? We've got a spare seat. I think I think we're going to be okay. She turned to me and said, yeah, I don't think you have to worry about that. That was for my boyfriend and he just broke up with me. Good. 17 hours of awkward. 17 hours of a spare seat next to me with my foot firmly inside of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's not ideal. No. Far from ideal. Yeah, I've had a few good ones, but I mean, you're just trapped on there. There's nothing you can do about it, really. The good thing to remember is that turbulence can't bring down a plane is the best thing I've ever heard. They're designed to take on any amount of turbulence. Well, I wish I'd known that two weeks ago. Yeah, there you go. Well, for your flight to the US. <laughs> Sitting there gripping the armrest like, I'm about to die on this plane, but yeah, I wish I'd known that. <laughs> yeah, from everything I heard, there was, um, and I'm a bit of a plane nerd, but the cargo planes, they just fly straight through the turbulence no matter how bad it is. But the 
the actual flights that you take commercially, the main reason they fly around turbulence and up and above it and below it or whatever is because, number one, they don't want people to freak out and spew, but they also want to be able to sell the food and stuff that's on there as well. So it's a commercialised and comfort thing more so than a safety thing. Hmm. Well, that's good to know ahead of a long-haul flight. There you go. Take that over to LA and back. Like you mentioned, going through security, you getting bomb swabbed. I got the full, in Melbourne, the full 3D scan. <laughs> and then because I had a jacket that had zippers on the sleeve, they had to pat me down because yeah. <laughs> they obviously lit up on the screen. So that was fun. The USA, they do that to everybody. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you'll get that again. You'll be glowing by the time you come home. You'll be like Mr. Burns coming out of the forest. That's fine by me. I can't catch COVID if I'm radioactive, surely. <laughs> so, yeah, having spent eight hours sitting in Melbourne Airport, managed to watch plenty of stuff. This week, we're going to hang 10 on waves and staircases oh. as we review Apple TV's Make or Break and Binge's The Staircase. Which one do you want to start with? Uh, number one, I'm disappointed you didn't run with the wipeout downstairs joke, but uh, Make or Break was pretty good. Like I, I found Apple TV again. We keep singing their praises every time I speak to you, but they absolutely killed this one. I mean, for me, I, the only thing that gets me with Apple TV is I don't know whether it's I'm not watching the right channels, I guess, or whatever, but I never seem to see things coming and I kind of get surprised by the things that are on there. I, I went on to Apple TV not really knowing what to watch and couldn't believe my luck when uh, Make or Break popped up, which is basically the, I always refer back to it, like the all or nothing, like the original sports drama documentary series, but it's a seven-part. Eight. Eight episodes. Documentary, eight-part, sorry, eight-part documentary series for professional surfing. And I loved it. Like, I, for me, as, a, as someone that surfed and someone that actually follows the competitions pretty regularly, I mean, it was always going to be really good for me and it just kind of gave me a bit of, more surfing content to watch, I guess. But the thing that really got to me was that for Anne, my wife, there's someone that's from Penrith, like very non-surf city, um, really got into it and was able to finally share a bit of my passion for surfing and love for professional, watching professional surfing, and it really made it accessible for her. I think that every time I watch these sorts of shows, I don't know, for me, I guess I assume it's the same for you. Like any sport that I watch, People underestimate the amount of drama that sports creates. Yes. And I think these these shows just really, if that's the drama, that sport itself, I think these shows are kind of really doing a great job when they do them well, like Apple TV did. They add depth to the characters that are in the drama. So if it's the, the F1 show, like Draft Survive or whatever, for people like me that's never been in F1 or for Anne that's never really been into surfing, the next time, like, Margaret River was on straight after we watched a, the, the contest in Western Australia and you knew the people that were surfing, it wasn't just a person wearing a different coloured jersey on a surfboard. It was a human being that you knew their troubles and their likes and their their, their family and their struggles. So, yeah, I really, really loved it. Yeah, like, yeah, it stops everyone just sort of being robots, essentially. Like, you just look at them and, like, well, this is just someone doing something amazing that I don't really know. They actually have characters behind them and people that you like or people that you dislike. And that that adds more of that drama to watching the sport. And I'm like Anne, like I don't watch a lot of professional surfing. Like I'll watch bits and pieces. But yeah, watching this, I was hooked. I 
binged the whole eight episodes in a couple of days while I was laying in bed with feeling horrible and nothing else to do. But if I felt good, I probably still would have done the same thing. Like I would have powered through this because the story was so well done. Yeah, and I think like the way they approached it as well, like they kind of were pretty thematic in the episodes. It was really cool seeing like Tyler Wright going through. She obviously had a health struggle. Mm. But I think the way they do the themes, I mean, there was mental health poured in there with um, Felipe Toledo, who went through struggles with depression. Um, Gabriel Medina, who went through struggles with family issues. And I think just the characters like that, I think they're really... For me, as a, an average surfer, an average person, it's kind of you look at those people and you think, oh, they've got it made. It's like it's so easy for them, you know, like they've always been sponsored. Like um, Kanoa Gashi has been sponsored since he was 12. Jack Robinson, another one that looked like he was really struggling with his mental health. And for me, from the outside, I always looked at them like, oh, that little kid, he's just good at surfing and he's just got sponsored for board shorts since he was 12. It's so easy for him to be pro. But then you watch these shows and they break it up into those sections and you go, it wasn't easy. Like he's really struggled for a lot of different things. Obviously it's there's similarities and differences to the average person's struggle. But I think, yeah, that's what really stuck out to me. It made them very much humanized, but it shows you that it doesn't really matter who you are. You've got the same struggles as other people and almost the same mindsets to overcome whatever problems you have. Like it's, yeah, it made it a lot more relatable to me. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of these sort of shows have probably learned from Drive to Survive. I think that was the first one where it didn't just follow the season beat by beat. Like it kind of used it used the season as a skeleton and then it added depth to it with themes for each issue, each episode and topics about specific drivers that might have carried over a couple of episodes, which this sort of really did. And like you are mentioning, it talked about them, the struggles, like it, it mentioned that, Hey, like these guys are on the professional world surf league, but up until that point, yeah, they had sponsors, but the sponsors were really only supplying them with products. They weren't sort of paying them a huge amount. So just to qualify for the world surf league was big because then that meant now we're actually going to make some sort of income from this. And even then the guys that are coming in the bottom 20 or the bottom, like the bottom half, yeah. they're not making all that much. Unless you're in that top five fighting for the world title, you're not making a lot, especially on the women's side. Yeah, even worse for the girls. Like I was saying, Steph Gilmore makes most of the money and then even it was like the top three making money and then the other 20, 30-odd women are just really struggling. Actually, I thought it was a really good thing when we're on the, the women's side of the surfing that, it was a good year, I guess. I think it was last year's, but it was a good year to be able to follow and see the women actually being treated the same as the men and the push that they're having to do that. And surfing's a hard one for me. Not I'm fully for the women's equality in surfing, and I really love seeing them charge. But man, like some of those waves that they're getting pushed into for equality in the surfing competitions are so scary. Like mm. pipeline kills people repeatedly and professional strong surfers repeatedly. And then they had the choice, obviously, should the girls surf pipeline for the very first time ever? And that was the first episode. I could not have blamed any of them for just not going. Even the boys, when they say they're going there, are scared to go to pipeline. Like it's it's one of those places. Chopu in Tahiti would be the same. Cloudbreak in Fiji when it's on its day would be the same. 
there's so many big, big waves that can really, really do damage. I mean, Tyler Wright, Owen Wright got brain damage from surfing pipeline and then she was out there surfing a final. And yeah, I love that the girls are getting the equality. It's just so crazy to, to see how hard they charge to do it. It's, it's really impressive. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that they didn't have a permit for pipe until someone was attacked by a shark in the bay that they were supposed to have their event. I was like, I always just assumed that the men's and women's comps went to the same places, whether it was at the same time or different times of the year. But yeah, so that that was something I learned. My impression of Tyler Wright from this show is though that she's such a South Coast Australian <laughs> Bogan Aussie girl. Like, yeah, yep. I think she's so. she sounds like she's from here. Yeah, I think you know what? With all like, I think the best thing that's been happening for the women's surfing is as for as long as I've been watching surfing and I've been watching it fairly closely since I don't know, maybe 2001. The quality of women's surfing, and like the episode says with Steph Gilmore and Tyler Wright's a big part of that, is that their quality has just gone through the roof. Like, they they went from girls that they could surf really, really well, but they weren't making much spray. They weren't really doing any airs. It was all style-based, like they're saying about Steph Gilmore winning world title after world title. But now there's girls that are throwing airs and charging as hard of the, harder than the boys in some cases and, and really ripping on waves. So they deserve to have that crack. But, yeah, I think Tyler Wright's a big part of that movement into powerful girls that can really tear waves up. So that's cool to see that part too. And do you think that sort of comes because like a, a lot of these events, they're live streamed online now that they're, they're not sort of relying on pay TV or TV in general, like they have the same sort of coverage opportunities through the, the WSL streaming platforms? Yeah, I mean, they get the same coverage. There's a huge girls surfing following, which I think really helps. But I, I think the the pay gap is obviously there. I think that's one of the big things that would be stopping them. But, I mean, there's a lot of really good up-and-comers. I mean, Isabella Nichols was a good example who, I don't know if you remember, she had the dad who had just had cancer. Yep. But then he got to come out and see her take a win. And, I mean, there's girls that are up-and-coming that are just crazy solid surfers. But, yeah, I mean, I think having them streamed is good. I think KO's got it now when you watch the actual coverage and Fox Sports have it again. It used to be Facebook. It really gets changed around quite a lot. They have a lot of coverage, but I guess they have a lack of sponsorship. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I would like to see more of the, I mean, the bottom end, like you saw, the bottom end of the men's surfing draw still doesn't get paid where you got like the rookies sleeping in the back of vans and stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, the middle order would be getting paid quite well, and I think that needs to transfer across to the women's as well. And, I think if they've proved anything over the last 22 years, and if you see anything in that show compared to what you might have watched 20 years ago, is that the more that people fund it and the more that people believe in them and the more quality they get, just the better their surfing gets. Like it's it's crazy how good they are. Yeah, I think we're sort of seeing that across all sports now that women are sort of getting some sponsorship and some actual coverage. It's encouraging more athletic girls to get into specific sports and then that improves the sport and then makes more people want to watch and get involved. Yeah. And I think these shows too, like for, for people like Anne or for people even like you that aren't into the sport, it encourages you to watch the actual contests post watching the show. Like, I mean, 
you watch the show, but the, the crazy thing about watching a sports show, like I said, the drama is coming from that sport. And this is just kind of, it's almost like a behind the scenes, I guess, of the actual sport. But the good thing about it is even if the seasons aren't on, you can watch contests and you get to see those same characters within the same drama, but you can almost fill in the blanks a bit yourself of where the rivalries are or maybe some of the struggles they're going through or types of waves or types of surfing that they like to do. And the really good example of that for me was after watching Make or Break was, like I said, Margaret River, which is in Western Australia. The contest was on straight after that. And um, I don't know if you remember the episode I've talked about of Jack Robinson. So he grew up as a young pro surfer, was obviously picked to be an absolute weapon on the tour, but has struggled through that with mental health and things. Yep. He won his contest in Mexico for the first one, but the Margaret River contest was on straight after, and that's his home break, so he's from Margaret River. So I got to sit there and actually watch Mar- uh, sorry, watch Jack Robinson go through that, as well as Isabella Nichols that had the dad who had cancer and all those struggles. They both went through and won their tour events at Margaret River, so it was awesome to watch the show and then go into an actual event and see those people you were really backing for in the show succeed in the actual drama of the events live yeah that's cool a couple of the other notes i took from the series surfing has to be one of the only sports where you see someone compete under the hawaiian flag and not yeah. <laughs> the u.s flag yeah. like that took me so long to wrap my head around up flag is that yeah that happened to me actually yesterday a completely different conversation i was having with someone but their son had for some reason the nickname john john and he was really upset about it and I said, no, no, John John is like John John Florence. He's like one of the best surfers there is, really cool guy. Like, you should tell him, like, look up John John Florence and he'd be happy to have that nickname. And they said, oh, where's he from? Like USA or Australia? I was like, no, Hawaii. <laughs> but then I kind of thought to myself, I said, no, Hawaii, but that is USA. <laughs> so That is the US. Yeah, they are very much a, a proud nation of surfers, Hawaii. They don't, they're not going to let that get away from them. Yeah, like I saw that and like when they show the rankings, I was like, what flag is that? And then yeah, I realized yeah. that uh, it's Hawaii. They look at themselves as a separate country, essentially. Yeah, when it comes to surfing, yeah, when it comes to surfing 100%, they're not going to back off on that. Uh, and then also extreme sports always have that like distinct nasally commentator voice. <laughs> All of yeah. them. Like, yeah skateboarding surfing bmx they all have that same commentator like every time i hear it i'm like yep that's an extreme sport there's something about the cultures in those sports like growing up surfing a lot obviously or whatever but the more that you hang out with those people the more you speak like those people and it just becomes a part of people you're hanging around speak like that and they get all bro down like oh yeah like it just happens and then i don't know obviously the people that know the most about it and the commentators are just bombarded by it all the time so yeah it's just part of it i guess i, I like it but ian hates it <laughs> and some of the weird names that come out there used to be a surfer named wiggly dontis that was on the tour and ian just hates some of the random names that come out such a weird name i couldn't believe like how good the brazilians have gotten like i, th- I really enjoy yeah. watching the, the other That's side crazy. of the brazilians a lot of their waves aren't that good like you think about the context of hawaiians or australians the waves in Brazil aren't that good, or even Kelly Slater. He's from Cocoa Beach, Florida. And I mean, if you when you go down to Florida, have a look at the surf compared to what you think pipeline might be like. God knows how he became like so good. And he's like 50, 
and he's beating the kids that used to look at him on the tour when they were 10. Like, it's crazy. He's nuts. The, that finals format as well for the when they do finally get to the top five, that looks like it's really tough for whoever comes in fifth. Like, you have to win four heats in one day, essentially. Like, that's rough. So that's a new format that they've put in. It wasn't always like that. They used to just basically run it off of, like, other sports where once you got a certain amount of points, you're uncatchable. They gave you the big trophy. Okay, yep. But it kind of built an anti-climax into it, I guess. Like, it... Yeah, if someone wins, if someone wins a, wins a bunch of events at the start of the season, it's kind of one horse race. The game's over. Nobody wants to watch the final few. Yeah, like in the days where like Mick, Mick Fanning got it, who I thought was a brilliant commentator through the whole of it. I really liked mm-hmm. Mick Fanning being a part of it because he's just a great bloke, but also a very good surfing commentator. But when he was winning his titles and when Kelly won most of his titles and all the rest of it, it was one of those situations where it was weird. Like they'd win a, I don't know, like a quarterfinal in a random contest but usually it's towards the end of the year around when they go to Hawaii or whatever but yeah it just kind of was a bit of an anti-climax so I can see they've really built in this format now of, of making the cut and then a final series at the end yeah if you get to the like end and you're the last surfer in you've got to surf what you got you got four heats you've got to beat the top four guys and the last one yeah is three goes yeah so it's it's full on but I guess that's the thing you get that big and oh, I wondered that. Is it an advantage if you come first and you get to only surf the one triple heat, but also you've got to sit there all day and just like try and be in your zone the whole entire time? I'd find that hard in itself. Like almost coming second or third would be a target. It's probably better to come second or third, yeah. Yeah, but I guess in the end, both the people that came first, spoilers, but both the people that came first came first. So it worked out for them, but they're phenomenal. Like, Medina throwing a backflip, like yeah. as soon as he hit that, I was like, "Yeah, you win, <laughs> you win." Yeah, <laughs> but I really love. I think out of all of it, I was always a very solid Australian surfing fan. Like I was always really behind the Aussie surfers, like Mick or Joel or whoever. But I think for this one, um, Toledo really took it for me. Like I just by the end of it, I felt like every episode I wanted the surfer who was being followed to win. But mm-hmm. Toledo and how close he was to his family and the struggles he went through and, and all the rest of it became my new favourite tour surfer, which was something I never, never had before I watched the show. So I think that speaks to how good the show is and how well it follows the, the ins and outs of their actual lives because, yeah, I, I never would have thought I would, my favourite surfer would be a Brazilian coming from Australia. But, yeah, Toledo it is for me now. And then two other notes. Why the hell was the PS5 at the Rip Girl house <laughs> upside down? Didn't notice that. <laughs> they can do what they want. It's sitting on their shelf upside down, like standing up but upside down. I was like, that's not good for the airflow. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, something tells me they don't pay for their own PS5s at the Rip Girl house. Yes. And, of course, a random South fan made an appearance on this show as well. Yes. I, and do you know what? I had that conversation with Ian not long before because we went to a couple of NRL games. I said, there's always someone in the South Jersey and they popped up on the show and she pointed it out. They're, I don't know why they're everywhere. It's not even that nice a Jersey, but it's just everywhere <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Any major sporting event, South fan. WrestleMania, South fan. They're out and about. <laughs> so yeah, I really enjoyed that show. Like good recommendation. I probably wouldn't have watched yeah. it unless you told me you need to watch the show. 
Yeah, well, once I saw it, I was hooked. I said, we have to review it because I'm, it's all I'm watching from now on. <laughs> I, I hope they do more seasons. Like, surely they will. I'd be shocked if they don't, unless they do different sports. No, I feel like I heard they were doing another season, which I'm excited for. I hope the, the women get a little bit more showcased. I think they've sort of only really had two episodes out of the eight. Yeah, it made me wonder. Like, I mean, obviously, like you said, coming from the South Coast, you saw a lot of Tyler Wright, um, which was really good. But it made me really wonder. Like, it felt like they were purposely not putting Sally Fitzgibbon in, and I feel like I didn't see much of, like, Owen Wright in there either, or Mikey Wright for that matter. Like, there was two other blokes that I really wanted to see that only got mentioned in Tyler's episode, but Sally Fitz was in the background of a lot of the episode for... The Steph Gilmore episode, yeah. Steph Gilmore, thank you, yeah. And I, I was like, why are they avoiding? Or even the final series, she came in at like third and they just fully skipped her heat. They didn't even show her heat, yeah, they just skipped it. Yeah, I, I don't know, it felt like a weird. I wonder if it was like a case of in Drive to Survive season one, I think it was Ferrari and Mercedes both declined to be involved in that season and then once they sort of saw that it wasn't revealing secrets or portraying the characters in a fair way then they got involved in subsequent seasons yeah I wonder if that was sort of a case with this where some of them looked at it like "Mm, I don't know how you're going to portray certain things or sponsors were like no you can't be involved and then once they see how well this season is done and it's not scandalous or anything. They might get involved in subsequent seasons. Hopefully that's the case. And story-wise too, you can't, you can't feature everyone in season one. You need to hold some people back. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, well, hopefully they save it for the next one. I could definitely see why people would even personally opt out because it's got to be hard trying to focus on winning a world title while I'm, I'm sure they're used to cameras, but while they're in just every single part of your deep, dark secret life. Yeah, I think like even some of the rookies, like I just, I'm sick of having cameras around. Like, I understand the point. Yeah, Sibley. She hasn't done as well this year. It was, it was funny actually because I really got behind Matt McGilvray, the other, the South African. So if you remember, there was the two of them, and Morgan did really, really well and came fifth. And McGilvray kind of got knocked out, but just was supporting his mate. But he was the one that was always really trying his heart out and like living in the back of the van. And meanwhile, Sibley was just out on the beers most of the time, which. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny when you, you talk about like Mick Fanning commentating on it and he was like, you've got to remember that people are always partying in the town and gave him a free pass. He actually used to have a party alter ego called Eugene uh, that used to go out and get drunk in different places. So he knows more than anyone how hard it is. But um, it's been nice to see, again, Matt McGilvray doing really well because I really felt upset for him that his hard work wasn't paying off and Sibley kind of just got through on the beers. Yeah. So this year it's actually been a flip. So I really, really hope they do another season. You get to see the flip happen. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. So then the second one, we're going to, as Buddy said, we're going to wipe out on the stairs now. <laughs> oh, the surfing puns. Here we go. <laughs> the uh, the true crime mini series on Binge in Australia and HBO Max internationally, The Staircase. Uh, what did you think of this one? Have Firstly, have you watched the documentary on Netflix? So I watched a part of the documentary on Netflix previously, forgot entirely about it, watched the HBO binge staircase and then went back and kind of series cheated a little bit. Yep. And started watching 
ahead of where the episodes are up to now. So, yeah, on and off. Okay. Yeah, so I'd watch the full season of the documentary. So I know the entire story. So far, the series, like, is following the documentary pretty closely. Like, it doesn't feel like it's telling me anything new or really telling me anything in a different way. So that's a bit strange. I kind of wish... I feel like if I hadn't seen the documentary, I'd be enjoying the series more, but I still am enjoying this series following, yeah, Michael Peterson and the alleged murder of his wife. Colin Firth as Michael Peterson is doing a fantastic job, but I think this is a Tony Collette show. Anytime she's on the screen, she's so good. Oh, and just, I mean, the way she has to go through and like do some graphic deaths on repeat. Yeah. They were like, it was hard to watch how good she was at acting those deaths. Yeah, that, that's my big takeaway. The, I think it's episode two when they show the first scenario where she, like, just falls and dies. That was so rough. Like, that was so hard to watch. I was like, I feel like Tony Collette is dying right in front of me. This feels scary. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it does a good job, I think, the show of, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, I think he killed her, but... Yeah, I'm the same. <laughs> it does a good job of making me jump between sides. At first, I was like, I felt bad for him. Like, man, these cops are really out to get him just because he's gay, bisexual, whatever he is. Like, they're just trying to pin it on him. And, like, she must have fallen. Like, it's a staircase. Of course she fell. But then by the end of it, I was like, no, he murdered her. Like, what a scumbag. Like, I got really angry about it. So I just, it frustrates me not knowing. And it frustrates me that the world still doesn't know really. Yeah, like he was convicted, but yeah, like they still, there's still all the, like it's not conclusive. Like it's not one of those open and shut, this is how it went down. Like, yeah, she could have just fallen. Like it could be all these different things. And that's so strange to see. And since you've watched the documentary, you know the the owl theory. Have you noticed in the series as well that they're kind of dropping breadcrumbs, hinting at that coming in later episodes? I didn't get what the the owl theory. What's that? Oh, you didn't get that far? No, I haven't got I just kind of jumped into a little bit at the end of it. Okay. So in the documentary, at one point as one of the alternative theories for how she got the, the big gouges on her head, they claim that an owl was in their house. And attacked her on the stairs. And that's what gave her the big slashes on her head without fracturing her skull. And in the series, they are constantly, you hear owls in the background. And she's like constantly worried about animals in the roof and stuff. Like, yeah, the bats. They're dropping all these breadcrumbs that the owl theory is coming. So I'm kind of just waiting for that episode to hit and be like, oh, this is ridiculous. And since Tony Collette has to act out all of these. I'm now an owl attack. <laughs> the owl attack is going to be one to watch. Yeah, now I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I just, oh, you can't, like, surely after they dig up the body of the German lady that has the same injuries, it's like, oh, that's right, I forgot she fell down a staircase and died. Like, come on. Yeah. It's just. It's so frustrating, legal system at some points where, like, I understand why it has to be like that, but it's like, we know you did it, but we can't quite prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So, like, it's, mm-hmm. uh, 
an owl. Like, it can't be an owl. Like, it's no. it was weird. Like, the whole fire poker, the blow poke thing was pretty insane as well, though, that they they found it and it wasn't the murder weapon because I thought, oh, that's definitely the murder weapon. But, yeah, it's a very, very good story for a miniseries. Yep. But, again, I think a lot of those real-life miniseries, it's the, obviously it's a far cry, and I'm, I hate to bring this up for you again and watch you get angry, but it's a far cry better <laughs> than the last Underbelly. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah way way better yeah like not in the same league but the same problem is that it's still open-ended as a real crime so you still as a drama series know you're not going to get what you want like those mysteries you, the best thing you want is that aha moment and the closure yep and i already feel frustrated that i'm not going to get the closure yeah it's it's still going to end up being like yeah, I'm pretty sure he killed her, but I can't for sure say that that's what happened. Yeah. It has been cool watching the um the actual show, The Staircase, the show, and then seeing them incorporate the filming of the Netflix documentary within that and then being able to watch from the documentary perspective that is incorporated into the show. It's this really weird, like, inception thing yeah. that's going on that I've never really seen before. It's It's such a well-done series and obviously hbo they always put out high quality product so enjoying this one excited to see it sort of wrap up and see all the the crazy theories in the cast though there's a few surprising names that i didn't recognize in the show did you realize sophie turner from game of thrones is in the show yes only because that's like Anne's favorite actress actor out of game of thrones our dog is named lady after her dog off Game of Thrones. So as soon as Sophie Turner popped up, <laughs> there she is. Oh, my God, that's her. And it was cool to see her outside of Game of Thrones. So, yes, but very, very impressed with the way she acted and seeing her outside of her general role. Yeah, I didn't realise it was her until I was reading through the cast list. I was like, what? Sophie Turner? Is that the Sophie Turner that I'm thinking yeah. of? <laughs> and then I clicked on the name and looked. I was like, oh, it is too. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> Insane. Didn't pick that one. And the other one, one of the sons is Patrick Schwarzenegger. And yes, that is Arnold's son. Right. And I didn't pick that one. Not that I've ever, I didn't even know he had a son, but, but yeah. Which son? Todd. The dodgy one or the, the non-dodgy one? Yeah. The youngest one. I think the one that found the blowpoke. Yeah. No, that's the, no, the older one found the blowpoke. You the pipe bomber. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was the younger one. Well, he's doing a good job too, actually. That's another one where I was like, Patrick Schwarzenegger, I wonder if he's related. Clicked on the name. Yep. I'm like, oh, okay. There can't be too many Schwarzeneggers in the phone book. No, but you never know. Like, it could have just been <laughs> coincidence and then, nope, it actually was. I was like, oh, that's... Patrick related to Arnold? No, everybody does that. <laughs> yeah, I imagine he gets that all the time. <laughs> like, related to Arnold? And interesting trivia... Obviously, Colin Firth plays uh, Michael Peterson in the show, but he wasn't a first choice. Do you want to guess who the first choice for that role was? Benedict Cumberbatch. No. Harrison Ford. Oh, yeah, he's a little bit fugitive in that, though, isn't it? Yeah, and I can't look at Harrison Ford and not see either... I'm sorry. <laughs> ...or Indiana Jones. No, you remember the fugitive? He killed his wife. Yeah. Or they thought he killed his wife. Like, he's already done that. Yeah, true. So, yeah, he eventually dropped out. So I imagine it was someone going like, you've done this story before. There's no need to yeah. 
do this same character again. I did like seeing Colin Firth do something a bit dirty. Like it was a bit gritty for Colin Firth, which is not his normal. Like Anne obviously gets quite hooked into the um, the Downton Abbeys and the, all sorts of things, and she sees him as, as Mr. Darcy mm-hmm. out of all the Jane Austen series. So, yeah, it's nice to see him outside of something good. I wonder if that was like him specifically choosing that for that reason, like I want to get away from everyone sees me in the Downton role. Let's do something like totally different. I hope so. Like it works. He's done really well at it and he's done really well at walking the line between victim and villain. Yeah. There's some moments where you're like, you are a jerk. Like I'm hundred percent sure you would kill someone. And then there's other moments where you're like, yeah, he's, he's getting screwed over here. Like, it's a crazy story. Is it, yeah, and there's a lot of curious moments where they act so well, but I don't know, you might be like, man, this is going to be a weird one, but when they go in and he's kind of come out as bisexual or whatever and he sneaks away to the adult book centre and and I always, like, I wonder to myself, I always thought, like, how do people just walk into those places and, like, like look at someone and go, yeah, do you want to? Like, <laughs> yeah. how do they go from browsing a shelf to in the back room and it's so funny seeing them try and act out like the weird little look, the weird little look. Now we're in the sauna and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Even like that moment in the sauna, like they kind of don't say anything that would explicitly say, hey, this is what I want to do. But yeah, but they, they do some things. Just start, just start <laughs> touching themselves and you're like, oh, whoa. Yeah. Like a bit that, could, that could quickly be interpreted the wrong way. Like, yeah. You want to make sure that that look is is being reciprocated. <laughs> yeah, but very, very different for Mr. Darcy. I, I thought he did really well at it. As, as gritty and as, um, I don't want to say bad, but as weird as it is for me to watch it, yeah, I thought he did really well at it. Yeah, so I'm really enjoying it and I'm looking forward to, like I said, the, the owl theory and how they wrap it up, whether they try and, give a more definitive answer than the documentary did. But if you haven't watched the documentary, I would recommend watching the series first. And then if you still want more story, then watch the documentary to flesh it out a bit. But so far it's very beat for beat. Well, definitely because you can see the documentary being made on the show mm-hmm. and not vice versa. Like you can get the a bit more of the insight from the show, ironically enough before the documentary like it's yeah you never really get to do that any other time yeah this is like the second week in a row where i've watched a show that also has a documentary about the same story like i watched uh, the girl from plainville with blake and it's the same thing like it's a series about a true crime that also has a documentary about that crime and i wish i'd watched the series before the documentary because obviously the documentary kind of spoils the series whereas the series is all about building that drama and then revealing what happens, whereas the documentary is just, this is what happened. Yeah, and I think it's nice to see, as a documentary, they're a lot more literal. And I think it's nice to, like you can see, for me, I was watching the documentary and going, oh, yeah, Colin Firth did do a good job of, like, his little idiosyncrasies and, like, you can see where things have been followed and where things have been manipulated, I guess, for the drama. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting to be able to do that. Uh, so out of the two shows, what would be your top recommendation since they're both uh, sounding really well done from both of us? Wildly different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I 
I think as an overall viewing for a majority of people that want something dramatic and happy, I've got to stick with make or break. Like it's really well made. Uh, I think it brings an insight into a sport. A lot of people only ever see the really crazy big wave or um, really intense moments. I think it brings a lot more insight and background to something that I really love and I think a lot of people are semi-interested in. So I'll stick with make or break, though I am excited to see the owl attack Tony Collette. Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm picking make or break as well just because it is that perfect introduction into surfing. And like you said, I think it shows the behind the scenes, but it also shows you the, the athleticism rather than here's just five seconds of a crazy big wave. Like here's guys and girls spending an entire year working to this one day and the crazy amounts of work that they have to do to do that and do that well. So make or break for me. Good pick. Yeah. And I think just like while well, we're on, just owning their struggles. I really like for me now, and I'm still getting older because we've come out of the, hopefully in the back end of COVID, but it's nice to see people own their struggles and talk about them and get through the other side of it. So yeah, that was a big part of it for me too. Alrighty. Thank you everyone for listening to the commentary booth. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate, review and subscribe on podcast services and on YouTube. You can follow me on social media at Jamyups Media and at Parrier Magazine. And you can follow Buddy on Instagram at a.b underscore c-s-double-e. The Commentary Booth is a fan-funded production of Jamyups Media. You can support the podcast alongside our magazine, Parrier Magazine, on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Media. The following people supported at the community support group level or higher and you cannot fathom how incredibly appreciative we are for their support. Brian and June Hart, Blake Robinson, Rena Renee, Courtney Paulson, Darren Hatcliffe, Jackson Carr, and Tracy Epps.